Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Ellen McGirt. Ellen, how are you? I am um, in a wonderful mood these days. I just got my vaccine, which means I'm going to be heading out into the world soon. And I've learned a lot about commercial real estate recently. Yeah, and uh, and that happens to be the topic of this podcast. Yes, but, it does. You know, it's really about the man who got us into this. He's he's only 32 years old. He came from a, a tough background in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, but he is revolutionizing the commercial real estate market. He is. And we're here to talk about Cadre with Ryan Williams, who, and I'm just going to let you know, had a birthday recently. So now he's 33. Oh, I got, I'm a year behind. Okay. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) But Cadre is an investment platform for individual investors to participate more broadly in commercial real estate investing alongside some of the big guys. And he's got a big vision for democratizing, well, just about everything. Which among other things landed him on Fortune's 40 under 40 list. Congratulations on that. That was a few years ago. You know, what? what's interesting about Cadre is commercial real estate has largely been confined to these giant real estate investment trusts. And the only way you could invest in them was if you had a lot of money. Uh, right. and, and what Ryan has done with Cadre is take that process and use technology to to democratize it, to make it possible for the cost of entry to be much smaller so that the average investor can have commercial real estate in their portfolio. But I'm not the best person to talk about it. Let's hear it from Ryan. Before we dig into the really interesting intricacies of your now $800 million business, I think it's just a great place to start is is you and how you grew up and how you got here. Yeah, definitely. I um, am from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, originally. And, you know, I came from a a city that doesn't oftentimes produce real estate technology founder CEOs. Um, But I think everything for me really started with my first business I founded when I was 13, Mm -hmm. sports apparel company. You know, that started from a pain point I experienced firsthand, which was growing up playing sports, but not being able to afford the name brand headbands and wristbands. So I asked myself, what if I could build a business where I could kind of solve the same pain point for other people? And that same question is frankly what propelled me to start uh, a larger business when I was in college at Harvard and uh, basically ended up uh, beginning to buy real estate homes during the subprime credit crisis after seeing, you know, there were communities that were ravaged, uh, primarily black and brown communities throughout the Southeast. And clearly that same question led me to Cadre when I recognized that a lot of people did not have access to the very kinds of real estate investment opportunities uh, that I was working on at places like Blackstone. And that I thought it was critical for more people to be able to participate uh, in this asset class and ultimately democratize it. But but it was also a business insight that you realized after the Great Recession that there was an opportunity to pick up real estate at a very low price, do some minimal turnaround and make real money off of it. How, how did you have that insight? The, the insight came after I visited my best friend time in Atlanta, Southwest Atlanta, predominantly black part of uh, Atlanta, uh, where he was from and saw that there were all these foreclosed homes up and down the street uh, a year after the street was pretty much immaculate. 
and I asked him what was going on. He didn't know, but he actually said he heard that a lot of people were underwater because of a lot of predatory lending. And so I actually decided to research and see if I could answer that question. What, what were these homes worth? What I found is that a lot of the data was publicly available. And from that insight, seeing that, you know, these tax county assessor records track data, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and that a lot of the banks at the time were listing their REOs and their websites and publishing where homes sold at auction, I saw that there was a disconnect there. And what kind of led me to actually address that disconnect and try to build a business around it was clearly seeing the economic opportunity and the dislocation in the market from data, but also seeing the impact on the community itself. And I think that's what's always driven me is not just about maximizing financial return. It's also about maximizing you know, impact. And that kind of combination is frankly what's you know, one of the common threads in what we're doing at Cadre today as well. What you were doing when you made that trip to Atlanta was basically saying the real estate industry is ripe for disruption. They're not taking advantage of digital tools. They're not taking advantage of all the data is out there. The way they do it is really, really antiquated, and I can do it better, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And I don't know if I ever in my mind even uh, uh, synthesized it that clearly, but what I saw was that there was a lot of data that was disorganized, that was unstructured, but available that when structured, when organized, could drive insights, could drive unique perspectives and viewpoints on opportunity. And I saw real estate, just from my initial experience, it, it was Jurassic. It was an antiquated space. People mm -hmm. didn't fully leverage some of that data. It was about relationships and about who you knew. And so by doing things as simple as tracking every single home that was on a bank's website, you know, building a database, uh, when that website updated their data tape, taking that information, literally pushing it through the county assessor records, I could get to valuations and get to auctions and bid with better information than others. And that allowed us to win wow. some deals early on. But it was leveraging that data and packaging and structuring it in a way that allowed us to be better investors. That was really the opportunity. Well, and real estate is also, particularly home buying, has such an ugly history of barriers, of redlining, of systemic lack of access to capital. How does Cadre address this? And maybe, maybe the better way in is, why don't you tell us how it actually functions and where the democratization comes in? Yeah, definitely. So, so Cadre was really born out of my realization that most people, most individuals, and frankly, even some institutions, did not have efficient access to institutional quality commercial real estate. And when I saw that institutional commercial real estate, uh, especially the kind of areas we focus on, serves as a great hedge to equity market volatility, um, as a great way to generate meaningful tax benefits, um, and frankly, uh, how alternatives broadly had outperformed uh, the S&P and was also less volatile, I said, there's a huge opportunity being missed. And when you look at the allocation between institutions and individuals and you see that gap there, you know, it was clear that there was no one who had created an efficient access point for individuals to benefit from this space. So my thinking was through technology, I could reduce those barriers, I could create access, I could create liquidity, which is also something that didn't exist and allow more people, you know, to benefit from ownership and own their futures. And so that was the thesis. It was about making alternatives like real estate less alternative. It was about mm -hmm. letting more people invest in the asset class. And 
you know, to date, we've been able to begin breaking down a lot of those barriers. We, uh, we have thousands of individuals on the platform that invest. We haven't fully opened up or fully democratized access yet, but that's part of our roadmap that we've actually begun accelerating with the launch of a few new products. Um, but the path is very clear for us, you know, to make investing in real estate as easy as investing in, you know, stock. Yeah. Ryan, you have a couple of relationships I want to ask you to talk about. One is the relationship with Goldman Sachs, uh, how that plays in. The other is the early relationship with Jared Kushner. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us something about both of those. Sure. Well, Goldman Sachs, you know, I'm an alum of Goldman. And, uh, you know, when I launched Cadre, they were one of the first groups that I reached back out to. Some of it was we hired some folks from Goldman. Uh, the other was I could see very clearly that both from a corporate perspective, they're corporate investors, and from a platform perspective, they could be incredibly impactful for us. Um, and so our Goldman relationship is multidimensional beyond being a corporate investor. They've also committed more than a quarter billion dollars of capital to invest in deals on our platform through their private wealth network. The chairman of our investment committee, one of the first people to back Cadre, uh, is a guy named Mike Facitelli, who used to be the CEO of Vornado, head of Goldman's real estate mm. group. Um, you know, we have folks like John Winkle-Reed who have been supporters from the early days and a number of others as well. But they've been critical to allowing us to um, not just scale the business, but you know, tap into uh, an incredible distribution channel and in many ways help even further credentialize us. Uh, so that's the Goldman relationship. And again, we're really grateful for their their continued support. I, I, I'm sorry, Ryan, uh, the, the Jared Kushner question. Sure. Yeah. No, Jared was a, an early backer of the business. He uh, clearly saw uh, the promise of the idea being a real estate operator himself. And um, we included him as a partner and an investor early on. He's one of 80 plus investors, actually probably more at this stage. Um, and so there's no involvement or otherwise with, with him on a go forward basis. And I think one of the things I've been proud of is the diversity of our, our backers and our investors from all walks of life, um, whether it's Darren Walker, Ford Foundation, one of our biggest investors, uh, Soros Fund Management, another meaningful investor, Goldman, Mark Cuban, et cetera. Okay, we want to bring a new voice into this conversation. Fortune's expert on all things financial, including real estate, Sean Tully. His official title is senior editor at large, but he is uh, in many ways the soul of Fortune. And Sean, really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us. So talk about how Cadre has revolutionized the commercial real estate market. What does that mean? Well, they brought a lot of technology to the markets in terms of identifying properties uh, using uh, artificial intelligence and a lot of other techniques. We saw it with Amherst. They've done the same thing in the single family rental market. So it's really bringing big time fintech to choosing real estate properties. But in doing so, the second big uh, change that they brought to the market is the ability of individual investors to get into their funds, but their funds are not a typical investment funds such as REITs because you can pick and choose which assets you want to be purchasing. Mm -hmm. They're primarily in, in multifamily. They have office holdings also, but they're over 50% multifamily, but you can pick which complexes you want to invest in from that portfolio on an a la carte basis. 
And the minimums were $50,000, but now they've gone down to $5,000 wow. in some of the, one of their funds. Wow. So they really democratized the market, whereas you would previously have had to be in a big REIT or a large fund, have no control over picking and choosing within that fund the properties that you prefer. Um, and they are giving you that opportunity. And, and Sean, why as a small investor do I care? Why do I want commercial real estate in my portfolio? This is a very beaten down asset now. Unlike the stock market, which is up 25% since uh, the beginning of 2020, commercial real estate is way down. So the opportunities there are much, much better than in the stock market. And the ones that he identified, I thought were extremely smart. He got out of the gateway cities three or four years ago, New York, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and he got into a lot of much lower priced areas, uh, Omaha, Nashville, Orlando, Knoxville, Jacksonville. These types of, of secondary cities are a great bargain. They were already benefiting from very strong employment growth, which the big cities were not. And then all of a sudden in, in the pandemic, you've had this uh, arbitrage effect where people have been moving from expensive places to inexpensive places and they can work from anywhere, which was not the case when they have to go to the office. So those trends have really benefited them. And they, they look to these you know, inexpensive suburban multifamily residential markets. But in, in looking at what Ryan has been targeting, it looks very smart to me. And it also gives small investors opportunities to diversify away from assets that are looking extremely inflated right now. Bonds are obviously at yields that have never been seen before. We saw Jamie Dimon just come out and talk about how bond prices are in a bubble, basically. I don't think he used that term, but just that they were unjustifiably inflated. And stock prices, we know from all the metrics are really high. Just look at the dividend yields. Just That's all you need to see. But the yields on these buildings uh, in the areas that he's going to are very favorable. And the problem is that if you go into these markets like Atlanta or Nashville, Orlando, Jacksonville, the problem is that their zoning laws are much less restrictive than in New York City. If you talk to someone like Steve Roth, the great Fornado investor, he'll tell you he would never go to Texas because you could build office space and multifamily forever out into the desert, out into the suburbs, right? And the supply goes up. So now it may be that some of the best opportunities could be downtown in some of these gateway cities if you think they're going to come back. In other words, someone who looks forward like Ryan, I would be interested to ask him, the vacancy rate, the office vacancy rate in New York City is 19%. It's the highest in 30 years. Yeah. That office behind you looks pretty vacant there, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's, he's at Fortune HQ. Sean, let me jump in with a really quick question because Ryan talks in a very, very poignant way about his humble Baton Rouge roots and the kinds of communities that have always been overlooked for real investment and um, non-majority culture minor minority owner operators not getting the investors that they need. For someone who is thinking this way too, as like a component of what they want to do is in, invest in the underinvested, is Cadre a good way to do that? I think it is. And uh, he has a lot of experience doing that. I think when he was in, at Harvard, he was buying buildings in uh -huh. distressed areas of Atlanta. 
So he's an expert at figuring out what the vacancy rates are going to be and the real economics of doing that. So I think that he can bring both a good business sense to it and also just this, this sense of mission that he's brought uh, to the company and to democratizing uh, the market. But I do think that these underserved areas probably have even better pricing opportunities mm-hmm. than some of the more conventional markets that he's going to. So A, it's the right thing to do. And B, I think some of the best opportunities are there. I'm here with my friend Joe Yukazoglu, CEO of Deloitte US, who also happens to be the sponsor of this podcast, and we thank you for that, Joe. Pleasure to be here, Alan. Joe, as you know, Deloitte and Fortune did a survey recently that found this economic downturn is different from probably every other recession in our lifetime in that it is accelerating innovation and accelerating digital transformation. I think something like 77% of the CEOs said digital transformation has been sped up by the downturn. How can that be? Alan, these are certainly not the circumstances that anyone would have wished for to serve as an accelerator for digitizing our society. But as a general rule, those companies that have made the investments in digitizing are having greater success weathering the current circumstances. What we're seeing is that clients are prioritizing investments in technology, software, cloud migration, and this goes well beyond automating the back office and taking out costs. I assume, though, that that means that the gap between the digital haves and the digital have-nots is going to get bigger. There's no doubt. I'm actually pretty optimistic around the potential for the real economy to experience a long period of tech-driven growth coming out of this. But there are definitely some big societal implications exacerbating the digital divide that we as business leaders are going to need to play a significant role in helping society navigate. Yeah, so important. Thank you for that, Joe. Great to be here, Alan. I want to ask a little bit about how you think about financing and real estate outside of your specific sphere at Cadre. And I I know this year in particular has been a challenging year for so many reasons. But one of the things that's been interesting is watching big, big companies like Netflix and PayPal invest directly in community banks and in, in black and brown owned banks that have those kinds of relationships with the communities that they serve who can help them stabilize and establish a wealth building track through real estate. How does that play out for you? How do you involve yourself in that conversation? And do you think that's a good strategy? I'm a perfect example and uh, I guess case study. In, uh I think it was like 2011, 2012, I was trying to get a loan to buy a large commercial real estate portfolio in Atlanta and uh, was turned down by about 10 different banks, uh, all for different reasons, but all kind of related to different risk, you know, and which was somewhat subjective when they couldn't tell you the criteria. The only bank, the last minute that ended up extending us a loan uh, was Citizens Trust Bank, which is a black owned bank based out of Atlanta, founded in 1921, um, that uh, had an actual deep relationship with Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and I think uh, his wife was actually, Coretta Scott was on the board at one point as well. But anyway, the, the, the bank chairman reached out to me and uh, told me that I was going to be given a shot and because you know he believed in me and, and what I was doing. And um, we got the loan. We closed that deal. We ended up selling it for a pretty meaningful profit a couple of years later, built a track record. And, um, and that, frankly, set me on the path to Blackstone and Cadre. And so I think about that experience and um, I say, what can I do to leverage my platform at Cadre and beyond, you know, to help build 
uh, a new generation of people who look like me, come from similar backgrounds, who haven't been given chances, who have been overlooked. And that's what we're doing at Cadre. So we've been pretty public about our belief in investing in communities that we invest in in multidimensional ways, but also supporting partners that have been undercapitalized, underinvested in. Specifically, you know, we've made a commitment to back um, black and brown operating partners and developers across our real estate fund product, the direct access fund we just launched. We plan on investing up to 20% of um, the equity in this vehicle alongside underrepresented minority operators who oftentimes are building properties in underrepresented communities. We've also made a commitment to finance that same amount of capital with minority depository institutions, MDIs, given the impact they'll have on the communities that they invest in. And then at the corporate level, of course, we're very focused on continuing to build the most diverse organization possible. So that's a really impressive list of commitments. Yep. Do you anticipate any of those commitments will reduce uh, your rate of return to your investors? No, I actually think it'll enhance the uh, the rate of return because in some ways it's almost like an arbitrage opportunity. These have been uh, right. operators, developers that have been overlooked. A lot of them have unique investment theses and strategies that are unconventional. And I think in many ways, again, unconventional approaches can lead to unconventional returns and outcomes. Uh, and so we actually are, are pretty encouraged. And I think there's sometimes a sort of false trade-off that's made when, when folks think about diversity and impact and uh, financial returns, that it has to be philanthropy or that you know there's going to be some trade-off or cost. My view is that in many ways, you know, criteria remains the same for our underwriting, our standards, our partnership thresholds. We have to think about things a little bit differently, though, in terms of maybe scale. So a lot of the operators we're working with operate at a sort of lower equity check threshold, smaller deals. So we have to aggregate more of them, but they've proven that they can execute and they just need a shot. They just need an investment. No, that makes perfect sense. Can we just step back? Just um, really quick story. In 2007, I was visiting a marketing and advertising firm who, separate from our meeting, was holding a focus group for young urban youth for a body spray. And they asked them to bring in images of the things that excited them when they thought about their future. And three of them, they brought in Fortune magazine. And one of them, when I asked, I asked to join the meeting, said, when you think about your future, he said, I want a licensing deal. So wow. I'm thinking about who is talking to young men such as yourself that you had such a keen insight. I, I know you're a natural talent. I know you're a hardworking, brilliant person. But there was some early spark that spoke to you. Who, who was it or what was it? Yeah, you know, I, I think about that a lot. Um, and I don't have a, anyone, when I look back from a business perspective, that I can point to as right. frankly like a clear role model, mentor, advisor, someone to catalyze this kind of entrepreneurial spirit. What I can point back to is my grandfather who was in his own way, a leader in Louisiana. So he was a pastor of one of the biggest AME churches in the uh, New Orleans area. He was somebody who always instilled a hard work ethic in, in me. It was also somebody who challenged me to think differently, you know, to think unconventionally and, and never to kind of uh, limit, you know, what I thought was possible. And so early on, I would start random ventures here and there. Mm -hmm. uh, he would be one of the people I would go to with ideas about the venture. And frankly, it was, you know, the fit my family support that encouraged me to think bigger. Same time, I was fortunate to be involved with organizations that uh, also 
promoted entrepreneurship in a lot of urban communities as well. So an organization called the National Foundation for Teaching Entrepreneurship or NIFTI. And I actually start to build mentors, albeit you know, at a, at a distance through that organization um, as I started my business as well. But at the same time, I always tell people, there's a lot of folks who look like me who come from where I come from, who uh, didn't have you know, some of those opportunities, didn't have some of that investment, didn't even have some of that support, who are just as talented. Uh, and that can make make all the difference. Ryan, you know, until recently, I've I've known you for a few years. You you haven't really been out there talking that much about race or diversity. What changed? I've definitely been a lot more vocal about uh, matters of, of of race and you know my experiences as, as an African American founder CEO. Um, and historically, I've been a lot more reserved. I wanted people to look and focus on the results of our business and, yeah. you know, my, my role as a, a CEO and an entrepreneur first and foremost. But what I think I've learned um, and frankly have had um, mentors speak to me about is that um, in many ways I can leverage my voice and my experiences to help open other people's eyes. And so what I found was that just by sharing my experiences, the fact that, you know, I've gone into VC meetings um, with investors and, you know, I've been uh, asked where Ryan is um, when I tell them, you know, I'm, I'm here for the cadre meeting or um, I've been compared in certain meetings with folks to an animal. And, you know, just a lot of those kinds of experiences that, you know, I've learned, you know, to sort of ignore, compartmentalize um, by sharing that it, it helps people see that a lot of the disparities, the inequities of frustration is grounded in, in some hard realities, even for people that folks see as you know, successful. And, um, and that's allowed me then to have discussions about, well, what can be, be done, you know, to help reduce some of these opportunity gaps? What can be done, you know, to uh, drive action? Um, what can each of us contribute in order to ensure that, um, you know, we're building a better future, a better world where uh, more people feel like they have a shot and a chance. And so you know, I've been more vocal about those experiences. I've worked on uh, a number of initiatives, some internal, some through partnerships that we're focused on. Uh, and I found that, you know, I get messages from people younger um, who uh, who say that, you know, they're encouraged and, you know, they're motivated and inspired just by me speaking up. And I didn't fully appreciate that. Um, and uh, there's that that quote about, you know, sometimes you need to see success in, in others that look like you in order to believe that it's attainable and achievable. And uh, and I see that that's more true now than ever. So it, it has been a, a growth phase for me in many ways. And I guess the last point I'd say is I've been really encouraged by my employees and frankly, how much of a rallying cry uh, the focus on equity has been. I didn't appreciate that a lot of my employees wanted to hear from me on more than just our business goals and objectives and milestones. Um, but what I saw is through this kind of COVID experience where everybody's feeling isolated and disconnected, um, talking about uh, what we can do to bring our society together and create greater opportunity and that I was aware that things were not ideal. We weren't living up to our country's ideals and values uh, was uh, was something that maybe showed a more human vulnerable side to me um, that uh, also motivated our team and I think helped create greater cohesion uh, as well. So that was another real um, uh, incentive for me to, to, to speak up and to let people hear, you know, my story, my voice and the entirety of who I am. That was beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala. 
written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 